Hey guys, and welcome to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. I never know how many episodes in I am, but as long as you guys keep listening, I will keep churning them out. So thank you for listening. Probably want to start off with a few bits of housekeeping first and foremost. So as a lot of you now know, we're now on iTunes. So all those great things that come with iTunes, the breadth, the ability to get the instant updates. So it's in your phone whenever you want it. So get involved in that. Please subscribe so that way you don't have to go searching for the podcast. It will just land in your phone or land in your podcast player of choice and you can get involved. So, I mean, the more you subscribe, the stronger the podcast is. And if you can also leave a review, that's always appreciated. I will try and read every single one. In fact, I will read every single one of them. I don't think it gives you the, the facility to reply, but I will try my best. And so that, you know, Second thing, as always, massive, massive shout out to the people that send me questions, especially the ones like, you know, they get me thinking and sometimes they generate some of the ideas of the stuff that I talk about. So it's always appreciated. You all know who you are, man. Just a few special shout outs just for the sheer volume of questions I get. So Danny Watley, who is a class act of a man. And if you follow him on Twitter at big underscore LaRusso, you know, he, he has interesting views on boxing. A lot of them I agree with. He's probably more forceful than I am. But now he's genuinely a good guy. And he's been through a lot. So I think boxing gives him that outlet that really puts a smile on his face. And I really respect that. And he's a guy who's who's in the gyms and he's helping out. So big respect to him. Also in respect, young Ellis. People know who he is, but he's a young amateur boxer based out of Wales. And he's, you know, he's hustling hard, you know, studying, boxing um, with the aim of becoming a lawyer. So anybody who is, you know, in the legal sphere and knows how to, to hook a guy up, this kid's talented. And I always say this, if you've got a law degree and you can box, chances are you'll be a damn good lawyer. So hit me up if you've got any vacancies going and I'll see if I can I mean, put you guys together because he's a good guy. Um, also have to thank, thank Francis Sewell, uh, you know, the, the queen of Lloyd's banking group. So, you know, she has a few obscure questions, some of which I want to touch on today. And then obviously the list goes on. So, you know, always say Porky Russ, cause he'll always ask me questions. Riku, you know, these are guys who, you know, will hit me up sometimes on a daily basis just to keep me sharp and alert. If I've, I haven't forgotten anyone. So, you know, shouts out to everyone. I will probably start mentioning more names as we go through this. And I think the other thing I wanted to say was thanks to all the people that have bought tickets for Umar's fight September 14th. Hopefully he's close to selling out now. I know John Palazzo is close to selling out for September 27th. Put that pressure on him. Also, let's try and get I mean, let's try and get Denzel Bentley up into those numbers as well. So make sure these guys are selling. Because if you want to go and watch the show, buy your tickets to the fighters. It increases their profile, buys them credibility with the promoter as well. And stops them getting shafted by promoters. So it's always worth thinking about. So I think that probably covers it in terms of housekeeping. So thanks for bearing with me. We're about to jump into the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about today. So today's going to be a bit of a 
uh, I don't want to say a, a listener's mailbox, and I don't want to say necessarily just a, a run around the world of boxing, but it, it's going to be, you know, bits and pieces of things that I probably haven't had a chance to sweep up on. So I'm just going to try and tackle them today in as short a time frame as possible. Anything under 20 minutes for me will be a massive achievement. So that's what I'm going to go for. One of the first things I wanted to touch on, and I've got to thank Riku for this, is you know it's the issue of relevance in boxing, and it was prompted by a video clip I picked up on. Right, um, that's that's a fascinating thing that you say you lose touch with the game. Like you, you do you don't lose touch with what you're seeing, but just sometimes. What's happening in the changing room? You know, obviously, you know, Roy was in the changing room last season. I've not been in the changing room now for three seasons. If you're not in a changing room, you do lose touch with the changing room. You do lose touch with the coaching. And I just feel that I'm more now qualified maybe to speak about other things in football than I am about actually sometimes on the pitch. I feel like in terms of... I, I'm not developing my tactical knowledge or my understanding of the game. Yeah. I'm, my knowledge is my knowledge and it's not improving. Maybe I'm understanding a lot more about dealing with agents or dealing with club issues and sort of finances and stuff like that because of Salford. So I'm improving in some areas, but I just feel if I'm commenting on football games, then I'll have to change and evolve in the next few years. I, I... So that was Gary Neville. And it was taken from a podcast called Off the Ball. And I did a live show in Dublin with Gary Neville and Roy Keane. It's the best two hours of YouTube video I've ever seen, but then I'm biased massively towards Roy Keane. But, but at the heart of that discussion is this thing that says, when are you relevant in the sport you want to talk about? And that's Gary Neville. I forget how many cabs Gary Neville's got. I want to say 75. I'm going to get pulled up on it. But he, he has a significant number of caps. And he's done it all. He's done the tournaments. He's won the Champions League, he's won doubles, he's won trebles. And there's a man who's prepared to admit maybe his knowledge isn't relevant to where football is and where football's going. And I say that because I feel like that a lot in boxing. Like, when I do these sorts of podcasts, one of the things I ask myself is, how close am I to the situation to comment? Sometimes I'm not that close. So if you want to talk about Deontay Wilder versus Luis Ortiz, well, I'm not that close, am I? Let's be honest. I'm over here, they're over there. But you want to talk about Andre Sterling versus Craig Richards, I can talk about that all day because I was there for Andre's first day in a boxing gym. I wasn't there for Craig's first day in a boxing gym, but I knew Craig from his Palmer's days, and not many people can say that. So when I talk about those guys, I feel my knowledge is relevant. We, we stay in touch, we stay in contact, so my knowledge is relevant. Even when you talk about Joshua... You know, people say, oh, you know, you talk so negative. But I know Anthony Joshua. And I remember Anthony Joshua in the 2009-2010 season when he was literally a wrecking machine. But only in a limited context because I still stand by the statement. I'm about to make it. Had Dominic Akinladi been bothered to fight on the night they fought in the London ABAs, there might not be an Anthony Joshua story. Or it might have been delayed until 2016. Because Dominic had everything in his locker to beat Joshua and just didn't take any of it out. So, Anthony Joshua is someone I know, we've spoken. We, I don't say we know each other personally, because a lot of water's gone under the bridge since then and he's met a lot of people. But it's the same with Yard, and it's the same with Dubois, and it's the same with Dave Allen. These are people I know, so I feel my knowledge is relevant. 
And I look at the next generation, your Jordan Reynolds, your Siobhan Clarks, your Fraser Clarks, you know, all of these sorts of guys, your Ellie Scottneys, Shona Whitwells, Shannon Courtneys, uh, Young and L Massey, John Palazzo, who's on his way up. When I see this next generation, I'm still relevant. But maybe there'll come a time when I'm not relevant. And these opinions I have will sound hollow to you guys. And I think that's one of the things we try and fight in boxing is that, that that sense of we need to make sure what we're telling you is relevant and this is why you guys have to vote with your ears if someone's on a podcast backed by a big broadcaster and they're just telling you really hackneyed stories and it's just their opinion they're not close to the fighters anymore don't listen the aim of these podcasts is to give you that layer of detail that the media can't give you generally. So the newspapers can't give you that because their legal departments can't be sure. TV can't give you that because their legal departments can't be sure. Then a podcast like this, I can only tell you what I know, but normally what I know is pretty damn good, especially when it comes to UK fighters, because I invest time in relationships. These guys are people who, to varying degrees, I help advise, I offer my opinions, you know, we all support each other. That's the boxing ecosystem. That's why, you know, I've spoken to Isaac Chamberlain through some of his darkest days. You know, when his uncle tried to 419 him. You know, the, the usual stuff. So, it's a very hard thing. But I know there'll be a time when I won't be relevant to where this podcast thing's going. And so I'll have to hang up my mic. So if anyone wants to buy three... AKG condenser mics one day, let me know. And a Rodecaster Pro, more than happy to sell these. But it's the same. But it's also the same thing with training. Right now, I feel that my ideals on training are towards the front of the pack. But how long can I stay there? And I'm not going to find out till I start, you know, pitting what I believe against other people in in more challenging circumstances we you know at Fitzroy Lodge we had three years in the alliance which I feel were three wasted years but notwithstanding that even coming back to England boxing I don't feel the standard of amateur boxing is where it needs to be to really test who the good coaches are and who who's not that good so then you start to look at the pro option do you put yourself in with some pros and you know what impact can you have with the pros it's all up in the air at the moment in terms of who knows what but what I do challenge is this notion within the boxing community that everyone's opinion counts equally. Because in some situations, it absolutely does. If you saw a fight being 8-4 and I saw a fight being 7-5, you don't have to agree with me just because I know more. You know what you saw. Where I take issue with that is where you say, your opinion matters more than the judges because it really doesn't. Until you're paid for the thing that you do, you're not under any pressure to deliver. So you can say anything and there's no accountability. Those judges at ringside are accountable and accountability will change your behavior. So that's one of the things I wanted to touch on. I think, and Gary Neville is right, everyone has a shelf life. Everybody has a shelf life. You extend it by learning. You extend it by listening, more importantly. Listen observe and adapt and that's how i plan to grow and hopefully among boxing fans that's what you guys try and do podcasts like this sort of help getting involved in the sport at a deeper level will help more because i promise you 
boxing makes a lot more sense when you immerse yourself in it. On the surface, it's frustrating and it's painful, but once you get deep into the science of it, it's far easier to understand. So the clip you just heard was the end of the Wadi Kamacha versus Dion Juma fight. So the fight was for the English title. You know, it, the English title has kind of been a home for Wadi Kamacha in recent years, you know, as his career has wound down. But watching him get stopped in the way he did and the subsequent retirement was almost, it was, a, it was an honourable yet sad way for Wadi Kamacha to go out. And the reason I say that is, Everyone forgets that Wadi Camacho was was a highly touted prospect. So when people were talking about who are these guys who are going to take over the next wave of boxing, so who are going to be the British champions of 2015, 2016 and going forward, you heard these names. You heard the, the names like Wadi Camacho, Danny Connor, John Ryder, uh, who else boxed out? Leon Williams. All these guys who boxed out of the Trad TKO gym run by Johnny Eames. You know, some of you, you know, who've been bo into boxing for a bit longer will know where the TKO was. And it was essentially like a Frank Warren holding gym. You know, Frank will have a look at you there and the Peacock as well. So they were the gyms most boxers ended up at. Um, I think Umar Sadiq was probably knocked about there. And you'd see all the characters like Tony Cisse and so forth. All these guys were there. I think that's where Tunde was before he went to the Peacock. So, Wadi was in that mix. And he's done better than some, but not as good as others. But when you look at the components of Wadi Camacho, you almost feel that he never got looked after. So when Eddie Hearn had him as a promoter, he, he pushed him, pushed him, pushed him until the China Clark defeat. And then Hearn seemed to lose interest in him. And then Wadi was kind of in the wilderness. And he ended up in the wilderness his whole, for the rest of his career until Steve Goodwin got hold of him. And I think it was just Steve's lack of clout that meant Wadi couldn't necessarily go for the titles. I think he was more than ready for and definitely deserved to have a go at. Because Wadi could box. You know, this, this macho man thing was cool, but Wadi could actually box. He was a pretty talented boxer, and people forget. He was in the same ABA cycle as Anthony Joshua. He had more eyes on him in 2010 than Joshua did, until Joshua made his own luck. He made his own statements, and he pushed on. But Wadi was always in that mix. And as a result, he, his career, uh, did he overachieve? Did he underachieve? I never really know the answer. What I do know is, he, he gave his all. And I genuinely feel that, and this is probably a wider discussion, when Eddie Hearn started out with guys like Danny Connor, uh, Evangelou, and he had Tyler Goodjohn and Ricky Boylan, he had a lot of like guys from the Southeast, you know, your Ben Halls, your Lee Purdy's and so forth. And then when Hearn got to a certain level, he forgot all those guys. Those guys who helped him, who held it down for him when no one really expected him to succeed. 
And Hearn has never gone back and said, let me just give you one payday, help you buy your own house, help you settle down. And I think he had the capacity to do so, and he chose not to. And Hearn hasn't looked after anyone that helped him in those early days. Like Spencer Fearon still waits for that opportunity to commentate on her matchroom pay-per-view card. And he was instrumental in helping Eddie Hearn come through. He was instrumental in selling Eddie Hearn and backing him. And so Waddy's also a victim of this. Because anytime Hearn is engaged with him, he's used Waddy as a stepping stone. And Waddy was much better than that. You could have navigated a route for Waddy Camacho that wasn't going to test his chin. That could have been done. Steve was able to do it. I'm, not, I'm surprised Hearn wasn't able to do it. So when I look at Waddy's career, I feel for him because I think he was better than his record suggests. I think as a person, he's a great man. Friendly, caring, considerate, a real gentle giant, but someone you wouldn't want to cross. And all I can say is I wish him all the luck in the world in whatever he does. I hope he doesn't make a comeback and I hope he gets to enjoy his family and he never has to worry about money again. The man deserves his retirement. On the other hand, now, we now look at Dion Juma with that stoppage, which was far more terrifying, far more savage than the Okoli stoppage. And we start to say, okay, what do you do with Dion Juma now? I was vocal in saying I don't think he's earned the right to a Chamberlain fight. I think with this win, he's close to that. I still want one more win at that level. So let's see what he can do against an Arfan Iqbal, who Steve could make the fight with in a heartbeat. If he beats Arfan Iqbal, then I don't believe any of the big four cruiserweights should be swerving him. That, that's my honest view. I think Dion Juma, at this point now, needs an Arfan Iqbal, and then you start looking at guys like Chris Billensmith, Richard Riakpour, Lawrence Okoli, maybe later on, Isaac Chamberlain, a little later on, just get over these hurdles, your Luke Watkins, your Jack Masseys, get over those hurdles first, and then we'll see what he's got. Because there's something with Dion Jim. His arms are definitely longer than you'd think from looking at him. And he uses that to his advantage. And he's got such good punching angles that even though he's not the most powerful puncher, he's accurate enough that he can hit the target zone. So good luck to Dion, and I'm quite happy to say you know, I want to see him do well. What he doesn't need, and hopefully the Goodwin stunts are done, he doesn't need stunts. He's never needed stunts. Dion Juma is a boxer. Let the man fight. And if Steve has to put money up to back his man, he should do that. But I say good luck and, you know, fair play to those guys for, for entertaining the fans on Saturday night. 10 million, you said you were going to go back to the zone and see. Well, he's moved up to lightweight now. Yeah, he has Australian. I mean, they never even negotiated. I said five million, he wanted ten. Couldn't we meet in the middle? But he was told not to. He was told to move up and he was done as he was told. Eddie Hearn, always a pleasure. Cheers, mate. Com- <laughs> What's sad is this is going to get glossed over, right? You have Eddie Hearn and Eddie Hearn promotes Tevin Farmer. It's a co-promotional deal, so he hasn't got sole control of Tevin Farmer. He merely gives Tevin Farmer access to the DAZN platform. Lou DiBella still gets a check off Tevin Farmer, and quite rightly too, because Lou has stood by Tevin Farmer in the dark years. You know, and now that he's become famous, you know, like I say, you should always be rewarded for your intellectual property in this game. 
But what's really interesting is that everyone's left Tevin Farmer. So if you look, everyone's gone to 135. Teofimo Lopez, 135. Javante Davis, 135. Shakur Stevenson staying at 126. Frampton staying at 126. Sandra Cruz staying at 126 or might leap up to 135. So you, you, Tevin Farmer's left where he was before he signed with Hearn, where he couldn't get the big fights. Now, when you sign with a promoter who's got a billion in the bank, apparently, this is the last thing you expect. And that tells you that they're not making real offers for fighters. Because had they offered $5 million and had they guaranteed that $5 million for Javante Davis, I imagine the fight would have been made. But Hearn is able to spin that convenient narrative of, ah, they don't really want the fight. But I think the reality is all the money fights are 135. Add into that the fact that I think Javante Davis struggles to make 130. I think Shakur Stevenson makes 130 easily, so why not do 126 and clean up? Frampton, Warrington, what's it, Oscar Valdez. And the list goes on. There are all these guys at Leo Santa Cruz. They're guys that Shakur Stevenson can build a legacy on before moving up. And by the time he moves up, then he's got Tevin Farmer. And Farmer's got nowhere to go. I don't think Farmer is big enough for 135. And he might be too big for 126, featherweight. So now Hearn's got another fighter like Demetrius Andre that he can't do anything with. Even though he promised us that these guys would be in big fights, the reality is no one needs them. Awkward, slippery southpaws are kryptonite. People will swerve them, people will avoid them. So how Hearn manages this is going to be very expensive for Eddie Hearn to deliver fights for Tevin Farmer. You know, does Lomachenko need it? Not really. Look, Lomachenko can have a run of Devin Haney, Teofimo Lopez, Richard Comey if he wants it, Javante Davis, Mikey Garcia might come down, and so forth. So, there are all of these options available. You know, Linares will be in the mix at 135. I'm sure Ricky Burns and Lee Selby want to be in that mix too. And this leaves Tevin Farmer in the cold again. And Hearn doesn't care because he's got names in there. He's got Devin Haney in there. So he can make a Haney-Javante Davis fight. Don't think they want it. But you can make that fight. You can make a Haney-Teofimo fight. You don't need Tevin Farmer. So I genuinely feel for Tevin Farmer at the moment. Because Hearn wasn't, wasn't up front with him and saying, I don't think a lot of people like me. And as such, it's going to be hard to make these fights. So good luck to Tevin Farmer. I like his style. I like his approach. But he's with the wrong company. And so he has to take charge of his career and say, is there another way for me to be on the zone and to box effectively without having to deal with Hearn? I don't know the answer to that, but Lou DiBella should be asking that question now. But all this brings me back to Loma and one of the questions I was asked, and it was, do I think Loma can clean up at 135 and I was I was just of the view of no I'd be scared for him to face a Devin Haney and I'd be scared for him to face a guy like Javante Davis as tricky as he is I just think the speed factor in both of those guys and the fact that they're pretty dynamic they're quite athletic guys and I think 
he could struggle with quite athletic guys who have a degree of aggression. They're both quite aggressive front foot fighters when they want to be. And so does Loma really want that? And let's remember, Loma's getting to, what, 31, 32? He'll start to slow. So all the magic we used to see before, we're going to see less and less of. That doesn't mean he hasn't got the dog to, to tough it out and fight it out. But if you're, if you're Loma, you're like, I could probably have a four-fight run at 135, lose one of them, and I'll be okay. You know, it might even be Richard Comey. You know, we know what happens when someone gets physical with Lomachenko. It gets hard for him. So let, let's see what happens. I'm just of the view right now that I think Loma is good, and I've put him pound for pound top three. I just think on, on CV alone, you've got to put Canelo above him. On what you see with your eyes, you've got to put Crawford just that little bit ahead of him. But he's up there. He's in that discussion without a shadow of a doubt now. Would he get a Mikey Garcia fight? We hope so, but that doesn't look too fruitful. But that will be a hell of a fight in his own right. God, is anyone ever going to talk about why we don't make the most of Josh Warrington in boxing? If you think about Josh, he's probably one of the few legit British fighters at world level. Not a bluffer, not a guy that won a belt off a guy with one arm, none of, none of that stuff. Just simply... A guy that beat people we thought would beat him. And we don't talk about Josh Warrington. And I've been a guy that's been down on Warrington a long time because, you know, Leeds isn't, hasn't been the friendliest places for people. So I really want to see people start pushing Josh because he's done well. And all he needs now is that test at, you know, at that US level. Can he do that against the Leo Santa Cruz? Can you imagine a Josh Warrington-Leo Santa Cruz fight? Like how many punches would get thrown in that? I, I'd be fascinated to see that because, you know, where Frampton failed, I think Warrington could succeed. There's a guy that he just seems to be on the fringes in terms of, like, Frank's efforts. And it might just be a case that Frank can't financially bankroll the fights that need to happen. So we see Josh Warrington go over to top rank, which would be a shame because... And it's frustrating because ultimately I think British boxing fans are the best fans on the planet. We will sell out when we know that we're getting quality. Warrington versus Oscar Valdez sells out Ellen Road. Easily. Sells out the O2. Why won't it happen? No idea. You know, as, as great as Frank is a promoter, I feel that's something that... Hearn would never get that fight wrong in terms of an event. But then Hearn would never get that fight made. And if you want to know why, see the reasons with Tevin Farmer before. Whereas Frank would get the fight made, but he'd probably have it in Bristol. That's no shots to Frank. It's just saying, I'd love to see Frank have a proper plan for Josh Warrington. That involves him taking over the world. I'd love to see that. You know, what, why isn't Josh Warrington allowed to talk about guys like Lomachenko? He shouldn't be allowed to. You know, he's done what he's had to do. What's, what's it? Selby, Frampton, Galahad. That's a hell of a run. And if he can get one of the Americans, Santa Cruz and Valdez, on that list, he elevates himself into a pound-for-pound pound list. Top 15, top 10, it's up to you. You make that call. But he's not built like that. 
they're not building him up that way, which is a real shame. But I'd like to see that. So, so Dev Sani, if you're listening to this, man, come on. Help a brother out here, man. Let's see Josh Warrington do his thing. You had a meeting today. Can, you, can we talk about that or not really? Go on. You had a meeting earlier on today with someone? Are you allowed to talk about anything yeah, to do I mean, with that? I didn't know you knew, but, you know. Well, I just, I saw you. I'm asking you, that's yeah, why yeah, I'm not yeah, mentioning yeah, yeah, names. Yeah, I had a meeting with Dillian White right, okay. and his team. Um, wanted to get an update on where we are with everything. They're pushing on aggressively to try and get this solved. Talking about his next fights, obviously at the moment, he's completely clear to fight with everybody. Mm. Um, and the end of the year, it's like, we're going to announce our November card, November the 2nd card in Manchester this week. It's only seven weeks on Saturday. Mm. So you start realising that December's even not that long away. So got to look at his next fight. Obviously he's down to fight the winner of uh, Fury against Wilder. God knows if that'll even happen. So we have to see, but obviously... Why did you say that? I don't know, I just don't... But I mean, look at, you know... Careful. What? He can't help himself, can he, Eddie Hearn, right? There, it's a nice, simple interview of, right, Dillian's got to sort his mess out, which is true. But I'm just going to give, I'm going to give Fury a kicking. Why? Because I can't help myself. It doesn't really add to the interview, but I just can't help myself. I've got to say, we don't even know if that fight's going to happen. Because the first one didn't happen, right? <laughs> And this is why Hearn sabotages people's careers. Like, if you're signed to Eddie Hearn, man, you've got to have it in your contract that there's an off button and you can say, Eddie, don't talk about X, Y, Z, because he's just ruining it. He's making things hard for his people. Now, when it comes to negotiating with Dillian, man, like, they might just give him a 90-10 split if he ends up fighting the Wilder Fury winner. But at the moment, he's got bigger problems to, to, to deal with. I just, we need the B sample. I'm not, I'm not going to comment on guilt or innocence. I just want that B sample tested. And I want UCAT to come out and say the B sample was negative or the B sample was positive and let's move on. You know, this idea that this is a legal problem, as I've said many times before, this is not a legal problem. Because if this was a legal problem, then, you know, there'd have been some kind of court intervention. There's been no court intervention. So it's not a legal problem. It is a disciplinary issue with a governing body. That is all there is to it. So they're trying to sex it up to be more than it is. They're just dragging this process out, maybe hoping for one last payday before they then have to do the ban. And they'll say, right, WBC, can we retain our position for when we come back off the ban? And hopefully they say, no, you failed a drugs test. If he has failed. Now, I don't want to say he has failed because, you know, we need to wait for that B sample. I think that's the right thing to do. But this is just painting boxing in such a murky light. Can you imagine Justin Gatlin going, well, I know I failed the test, but I'm not going to get the B sample tested until I win the Olympics. Then I'm going to get the B sample tested, get banned, but say, well, I was clean for the Olympics because so I passed all those tests. It's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. But, God, this is where we are with boxing, I guess. But Hearn going at Fury, man, it's just, it's boring now. That's why I just zone out of most of this stuff now. And it's this really weird juxtaposition where Eddie Hearn will, will ridicule Tyson Fury fighting Otto Valin and then reel off all the list of fights he's got lined up and none of them are better than that. So Usyk fighting basically a K1 kickboxer, does that really make sense to anyone? 
God knows what else we've got lined up between now and then, but nothing serious. Because, you know, he's making equally bad fights, but it's easy to throw rocks at the other side until you've got to negotiate with them. Then all these words become very, very expensive. Arabia to take the rematch with Andy Ruiz. What's your thoughts on that? That's not Joshua. That's Eddie Hearn. You believe this is not Joshua's decision, no? How much does Eddie make from that? Makes 14 million. And the Ruiz makes 10 million. And then Asia makes the rest. It's about money. If the fight, if somebody, let's say, the Saudis offer so much money, and then the Mexicans will be like, you know, fuck that, we're going to give you this more money. The fact of being Mexican, it's about money, you know, people don't understand, it's about money. You've said that for a long time. It's about <laughs> You've said that in every interview I've ever said with you, like when we've Eddie had a Eddie probably sell his wife for the right money. <laughs> There's nothing wrong. You've got to love a Del Boy Monday, like he, he, he speaks the truth, you know. The fight that neither man wants, in a venue that neither man wants, and so, you know, Derek breaks it down. It's all down to money. But it's not down to money for the boxers. It's always down to money for the other people. And that's where everything you see now is everything that's wrong with boxing. Joshua doesn't want to be there. His body language tells you he'd rather be anywhere else than doing these press tours. You know, if he wants to be in the gym, all be it. But he doesn't want to be in a ring facing Ruiz again. Ruiz doesn't care. Ruiz has that look about him where he's seen it all before and he's more than ready to face Joshua and he'll do his thing and congratulations to him. But it's a fight that the fans want to see just to see, is Joshua back? Is he done? Because if he's done, then Twitter will go into meltdown. The boxing industry, as we know it, will have to We'll have to pivot severely because that's a lot of money, a lot of casuals lost if Joshua gets smashed in the rematch. They won't carry over to Ruiz fans. They might carry over to being Wilder or Fury fans, but definitely not Ruiz fans. So then you go, okay, right, we're back to square one. No more big Wembley nights, no big events, no matter how much Hearn tries to spin. And you saw that in Joshua. You saw a man who's got the weight of the world on his shoulders and we'll talk about he's lost weight and he's done this and he's done that. But ultimately, this man has to fight someone. On December 7th, he didn't have the answer to before. His team did not have an answer for before. And they probably don't have an answer for him now. Because as I've said many times, Ruiz is too short for a body attack. So all you have are headshots. And Joshua has basically a one-two, a left hook and a right uppercut. Punches that are hard to get on Ruiz because he keeps his guard so high and his elbows out. So you're going to break your hand trying to hit him. And Joshua must know all of this. You know, but if you go back to what I said on June 2nd. The way they would spin this, we would be shocked that Ruiz even won the first fight. It would be a robbery, it would be a travesty. And now Joshua's going to make it right. And that's the story they've spun. Because... Team Joshua have learned what KSI and Logan Paul learned. If you plan the story out correctly, you can have the audience believing anything you want. And that's the sad part about all of this, is that, you know, the fans are being led a merry dance just so this Joshua project can make more revenue. So, 
I genuinely hope Ruiz, for the good of boxing, just puts an end to this sorry saga. But the last thing I wanted to touch on was was training. And it comes from just a a series of questions I had from from Fran. And Fran listens to the podcast a lot. Uh, People might know her. If you go to Miguel's, you know who Fran is. But the questions... So it starts with this. What is a training system versus what's a training philosophy? And it comes down to this whole system nine thing. So I define a system as any collection of processes and tools that give you a defined output from a defined input, right? So you take a pasta machine and you put the, the dough in and it gives you pasta out the other end, right? That's the system. Not many trainers have a system. Some do. If you see what Adam Booth does, it's pretty cookie cutter. If you see what Gallagher does, it's pretty cookie cutter as well. Where where I think trainers excel is when you're able to, to get the right kind of fighters and share a philosophy. And I think this is where Brendan Ingle excelled. Brendan Ingle was good at, and people talk about there was an Ingle style, and I don't believe there was an Ingle style. I believe there was an Ingle philosophy, and I say this from experience of having been there. There were a set of ideas that Brendan Ingle had. And as long as you stuck to those, it wasn't relevant how you expressed them. So you could be like Naz, all arms and legs and head movement and, you know, fast reflexes and powerful counters. You could be like that. You could also be like Johnny Nelson, who was a bit more considered and patient. But the important thing was you stuck to the principles and the principles were hit, don't get hit. Your defense starts with your feet. If you move your head, they can't hit your head. And there were all these sort of maxims that you'd get. And as long as you stuck to those, and that's why you see the guys that come out the Ingle gym, vastly different styles. Like you go back to guys like Glenn Rhodes. You know, Glenn Rhodes looked slick. He, you know, he had that Harold Graham style before Harold, he, before he even knew Harold Graham existed. And, you know, Harold Graham came and found that the philosophy was kind of like his. And then, you know, you had the next generation with Naz and Ryan Rhodes, and then you had Kel Brook, and then you had Kid Galahad, and they all expressed the same philosophy in very different ways. And so, I think the great trainers have a philosophy. And what a philosophy is, is just a set of beliefs. And if you get the right fighters and they buy into those beliefs, the way they will express it is capable of changing the way boxing is viewed. Now, that doesn't mean that you ignore technique. That doesn't mean you ignore your fundamentals. It doesn't mean you ignore all the things that make a good boxer. It just means those are all done through the lens of the philosophy and not the system. So I'm not judging anything by the process. I'm just judging the output. That's how I like to work as a trainer. You know, the things I'll say, like you've got to have a 10 out of 10 jab. What that looks like, it looks different for different people. If you're six foot eight with incredibly long arms, that's going to look one way. If you're five foot eight with really short arms, it's going to look a different way because you're going to need a different way in and out. And so that's why I don't necessarily have a system, but I have a philosophy. And from that philosophy, I have building blocks that I share with a fighter. And then I watch how they interpret it. Sometimes I tweak it if I feel they're going the wrong way, 
but generally I go, okay, how do you want to express it? And then let's get that nailed. So under pressure, and this was true if you saw the Joshua Ruiz fight, under pressure, nothing should fail. And that's what you aim for. In terms of as, as a young fighter, what's more important? It's very important to choose the right trainer because I don't believe in changing trainers. You shouldn't be changing a trainer until your world level, until you, there's nothing you need to learn anymore. And all you're doing is just finding a good fit for where you are as a human being at that point. You know, that's why, like I say, Miguel Cotto was able to, to move trainers often. It's why De La Hoya was able to move trainers as well, because they'd mastered everything there was about boxing and all they were looking for were those marginal gains at that point in their career. So you find a good trainer, like Canelo did with the Reynosos, you stick with them. If you're not happy with your trainer three or four years down the line, then you chose the wrong trainer. It's not the trainer's fault. Trainers don't get bad over three years. You just have your eyes opened. You know, I look at guys who train now and I go, you're with the wrong trainer. You're not going to realize that for another five or six years. And by then your career will be shafted. And that's the sad part about it. But then I look at relationships like Isaac Chamberlain and Angel Fernandez, and I'm glad they found each other when they did. And now it's about just immersing yourself in the philosophy and growing with it. And essentially, that, that, and those are the challenges. Because when I hear trainers getting criticized, I have to take a stand against that. Because think about what a trainer does. In most situations, a trainer takes someone who's not that well-educated relative to the population, not that experienced in life because all they've done is boxing. And with these limitations, you have to produce the ultimate fighting machine. A human being capable of mastering geometry, timing, you know, notions of physics, understanding acceleration, understanding force, all of these complex ideas, and you're trying to get these into a boxer who can barely understand Y equals MX plus C. That's why the process is so hard. Because you need someone who's able to teach these things, these very complex ideas, in a way that's accessible to people with very little education and also to people with a bucket load of education. That's what makes training hard. So a lot of times, everything that a trainer says is correct, but you're dealing with a fighter who can't process it. So when you see a guy and you're like, why can't he jab? It's not the trainer's fault. The guy just can't jab. When you see, why doesn't he move his head? It's not the trainer's fault. Sometimes it is the trainer's fault, actually. Because some trainers make the mistake of, they will teach you what they did. And there's nothing worse than a trainer that teaches you what they did. Trainers should teach you what bloody works. That's it. What works in all circumstances for all time. That's what they should be teaching you. Because I can't teach you what I know. Or what I do. For no other reason than you might not have my physiology. You might not have my reflexes. You might not have my timing. But I can teach you stuff that will always work. And then that missing 5%, you can add your own flavor to. And that's what makes training hard. Is that you're judged by how your fighter does. But no one ever measures where the fighter was before they met you. And where they are even in defeat. There's some fighters who, you know, and I come back to Wadi Camacho. What would Wadi Camacho have done 
with a Dave Caldwell? What would Wadi Camacho have done with a Sanaga? What would Wadi Camacho have done with an Adam Booth? We don't know. But it would have been a different outcome. Good, bad, and different, I don't know. It would have been a different outcome. Because the fight is the raw material, but it's the philosophy for me, and in some cases, it's the system. And in that case, inputs equal outputs. Fire the process. Whereas with philosophy, there's a bit more latitude, but a bit more risk. And that's what makes training really hard, is as a trainer, you've got to have a firm grip of your philosophy, and you've got to understand how it applies in virtually every situation. And that comes with time, and that comes with experience, and that comes with getting it wrong sometimes. But that's why we love the sport. Because the pressure to succeed is greater than any other. We're not talking aerodynamic advantages here. We're talking, does he make it home to his wife and kids, as Tony Bell, you would say. But as always, guys, look, thank you very much. That was just a bit of a brain dump of the last few days, the stuff that's been floating in my head. What I wanted to also say was, look, get in touch via Twitter at Highfield Boxing, via Instagram at Highfield Boxing. If you're on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe and write a review. Give us a rating. Help us get up that ladder. You know, can we be the number one boxing podcast on the web? It would be good if it was a British podcast for a change and not always having to pander to the Americans. Not that they're not good, but let's have a bit of British pride. So guys, take care and have a fantastic day.